Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. Super stoked you guys are here tuning in. I appreciate it. Today, I have Sam, a.k.a. Bowie Coke Mirror, best Instagram handle in the game. Been doing it for a long time. Coming straight out of Boston, representing the East Coast. I'm glad to have a different perspective here on the show. He is a highly curated vintage dealer, heavy in t-shirts, but also rare, rare, true vintage. And we get into some of that on the show. We talk about true vintage. We talk about the East Coast. We talk about what's going on in Boston, his history coming up in New York. We talk about Brimfield, super interesting stuff. I've never been, but I need to go. We also drop a vintage quiz on him that he absolutely crushes. And it is an awesome listen. Gotta throw this out there. He will be popping up at the LA Rendezvous, which is an event put on by the Vintage Production Guys in Huntington Beach on February 13th. So it's coming up. If you're in California, go check out the LA Vintage Rendezvous. I'll put that link in the show notes to more info about that event in the news today. I hired a producer. This show is produced by my new producer, John Molfetta. Shout out to him. He came on board to the show. So now this is a two-man team, okay? Also on this episode with Bowie Kochmere, we dropped some questions from the patrons on Patreon, okay? Like I said before, this is a podcast funded by the people. That is you guys. So if you want to support, if you want to drop questions for our listeners, if you want to see all the extra show notes, we also recorded an extra segment on this show that will only be available on the Patreon. A lot of good info there. So check out my Patreon. Link down below. Thank you guys for supporting and shout out to all the patrons who continue to support. I see you. I appreciate you all. Okay, without further ado, let's get in to Bowie Cokemere. Welcome to the show. What's up, Drew? Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah. Thanks for coming on. You're oh, coming yeah. to us from the East Coast. Yeah, man. Representing B-Town. Yeah, man. I'm in Boston. That's where I live. It's where I'm from. Um, I'm coming live from uh, my showroom right now. I'm actually in Rhode Island, just outside of Providence. So that's where I work and do my thing. And so um, You commute yeah. back and forth? Yeah, it's, it's like about 30, 40 minute drive from the house. It's not a big deal, but it's uh, definitely a different area, different vibe. Um, That's cool. Yeah, I'm in an old uh, industrial mill building with uh, a lot of great history. There's a lot of early American clothing history around these parts. It's like the oldest uh, 
cotton mill in America is right down the street. So it's a cool area to work from. Man. What's that mill called? Uh, it's the Slater Mills. <clears throat> Are they still going? Nah, it's like a basically a museum now. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the architecture is still around. So it's, it's a cool, like, vibe. So. Yeah, that's something I miss from the East Coast is yeah. the age to it, man. When you live on the West Coast, everything's so much newer, right? We're like, yeah. you know, you're... East Coast is like a few hundred years older. There's so much more history there, right? Yeah, yeah. The Industrial Revolution, a lot of history, man. It's cool. Super rad. Yeah. Okay, we'll get into that more, but let's uh, let's get into you and your history, man. Um, you know, I want to know how you started. How did you get into this crazy business? Um, well, I would say my interest in vintage clothing and when I actually started a vintage clothing business are two kind of happened at two separate junctures in my life. Um, you know, like we were just talking about being from the same kind of age bracket. I think we were, we had a lot of kind of similar influences being around, uh, you know, the emergence of like streetwear in the early to mid nineties, which was very heavily influenced by vintage clothing from different eras, from like hippie stuff to workwear and, always just had that interest in thrifting and all that kind of stuff. Like a lot of people in every generation um, coming up these days, the only difference is, uh, you know, we didn't have the kind of technology to just sell stuff immediately back then, like we do today. Um, so it was always just more for myself and just personal influence. Um, and then fast forward to about 10 years ago, I was really burnt out on a career in graphic design that I had been pursuing for quite some time and went to school for. And uh, I was living in New York, came back to Boston to pursue my freelance business and just uh, found myself procrastinating uh, from doing the design work, just buying vintage and kind of immersing you know, myself into like what was happening online with a lot of vintage sellers kind of popping up. And realizing like I'd have a lot more fun and a lot more creative freedom in what I was doing, just pursuing that as a career. So I kind of started my vintage business um, a little bit later in life with some more kind of refined ideas of how I wanted to approach it and both aesthetically and also from a business standpoint and just making it work. And so like at a certain point, I just kind of closed up shop with the design business and um just hop straight into the vintage biz, man. Just coming in full force and just just going for it, you know. That's awesome. So when you talk about you talk about how you thought it through before you jumped into the game, and you kind of had because you're already in, you're already interested in clothing. You have a good fashion background just from yeah. growing up in the eras, and you know maybe like a very clear direction of where you want to take it. So yeah. what was that direction, and like how did you mold your business model based on that? Well, so at the time, um, you know, this was kind of right before uh, the current wave of t-shirt craziness that we're in today. And uh, I was always very much t-shirt focused, um, just with my own style. And so my concept right out the gate was to just be a vintage t-shirt dealer. And at that time, even though it was right on the cusp of before, you know, the kind of t-shirt wave that we're in now, 
it was still kind of a, a, a bit of a novelty into marketing yourself specifically as a vintage t-shirt dealer. And so I just came out the gate with all the best t-shirts I could find and um, just put myself out there exclusively as that, uh, which changed pretty quickly once I started getting into it. But that was kind of my basic concept. For Can you summer. remember back then, like uh, lanes of t-shirts that you were really into? Yeah, man. I mean, for me, like um, all the early punk stuff was very like much what I was into. I was very into like finding all that early seditionary stuff and um, just kind of came out with that, that level of like t-shirt and uh, the, the like nineties alternative like t-shirts and hip hop and stuff like that was still just kind of like people were kind of like, um, you know, is that even vintage yet? Yeah. You know totally. I mean, kind of thing. And then, but very quickly that became kind of like the main thing that people were looking for in the last like handful of years. So, yeah. Um, and also I've, I very much like uh, curation and I'm very detail oriented and I like presenting collections. And so I started off on eBay, but I like dealing with people directly and getting that kind of feedback. And so like kind of right out the gate, I started, uh, I, I set up a shop in this uh, vintage market that we have in Boston that's uh, only, was only open on like Sundays, but um, it was like an indoor market. So I had my space that I could like work on week to week. And uh, that was kind of like the, the, the genesis of, you know, developing what I, what I do today. You know? Yeah. I scrolled back all the way to the bottom of your Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not that deep. You, nah. you, you have not posted a lot of photos or maybe you have and you've erased them or you just have been that curated this whole time. Yeah, I have, man. Yeah. You and know, when you talk about dropping collections, like how do you, like, would you be presenting collections, say like this week at the flea, I'm bringing out like a certain group and a certain vibe. At that time, it wasn't that specific. It was more just really getting into what I like and the general theme of what I would present is my own personal taste and really just starting at the bottom, um, you know, trying to, trying to see how people reacted to it and, and yeah. kind of going from there. And there figure wasn't, out. yeah, just kind of figure it out. And, uh, but it's always based off of like what I like first, you know what I mean? Yeah. As it should be, dude. And had, were you in Boston this whole time when you started into vintage? Um, yeah, started the business, started the business in Boston. So, so how is the scene there? You know, how are, is there a lot of, I don't really know. So most of the guests yeah. on the show have been West coast based. Yeah, I yeah. tend to, I tend to stick up and down the West coast. Yeah. Um, you've I don't know if you listen to many of the show, but yeah. I have, you know, I have a history on the East coast. Me and Jesse went to school in Vermont. Yeah, man. So as did I actually went to Goddard for like two semesters, man. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. And we love the East coast cause we were from Ontario. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. if you vacation into the States, you typically go to new England. Yeah. Um, and then I went to school in Vermont. I used to go to UVM on weekends. We'd go to Boston all the time. Yeah, man. 
um, mostly to skateboard to tell you the truth, yeah. because, you know, I'm like 15, 16, 17 years old. And, um, I fucking love Boston. Dude. I haven't been Did there in so long. Skate at uh, Maximus. It was a skate park called Maximus that like, basically I'm not sure when it sort of petered out, but my time there was definitely like, 92 to 94 ish is when i would i would yeah i was probably more like 96 98 okay yeah because it time to the rollerbladers at that point i think but oh really (laughs) yeah we would usually just skate street like that famous spot downtown i don't know if it's downtown but that that huge brick courtyard yeah Um, the uh the hospital with the banks oh the hospital with the volcano bank yeah 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 we went there a couple times but i remember getting kicked out of there for sure yeah they recreated that now. There's like there's like a crazy new skate park, and they actually like recreated some of the classic Boston spots and the the Copley Ledge and all that. But that's rad, dude. Yeah, yeah. I gotta make it back there. So I kind of want like your perspective on the Boston vintage scene. Yeah. Um, you know, like, is there a lot of dealers? Is there a lot of shops? Like, what's going on right now? I mean, we we come from like a a, a good cloth, man, because we had Bobby from Boston you know, pioneering and leading the way and, um, you know, just, just incredible taste. And, uh, his store in the South end was actually in the building where that vintage market was, um, where I got started and we were in the basement, you know, and he had the storefront upstairs and, um, it's, you know, there was kind of like in my time, there was a little bit of a, a, a quiet period for like a few years where there wasn't a lot going on locally and Bobby had like passed away. And, uh, but I'd say within the last three or four years, I think with every city, there's been a big emergence of like younger um, dealers, like developing and coming out and just going crazy. So now the scene I'd say is stronger than it's ever been in my time in Boston. But I think that's like also just kind of consistent with like every city and the times we live in and kids just kind of taking the rain or doing what yeah. they want. So, you know, Bobby from Boston is very famous in the scene, especially yeah. with the older dealers and everyone who's been in it a long time. Yeah. I don't have a history with him at all, really, because like I said, I was mostly West Coast throughout my whole career. Can sure. you like give us a little bit of background on him? I know a lot of people talk about him. Yeah. I mean, um, I knew Bobby at the very end. I wasn't super tight with him, but I have uh, older dealers that I am very tight with that are of his generation and grew up. So I know a lot of the stories and I've heard a lot of funny, like firsthand antidotes. But I mean, that dude was just a trailblazer on all fronts. Um, As far as I know, he opened his first shop in the 70s down in Provincetown. And then later, um, you know, moved his operation into the city and just, just legendary stuff, man, from like, you know, doing store concepts that were influential to Ralph Lauren to, um, you know, just, just to do, just did it all. You know what I mean? And so, and with so much class and like really put the blueprint down for how to, how to operate and just have a good time with it, you know? So I can't really speak on him too much more than, than just the yeah yeah that's fair the, man the big, just like the big influence the general influence that he definitely had on me and people that I deal with is is amazing so because I didn't even really know if he was so he had retail stores but he was also oh. like a dealer to a lot of Japanese and stuff too absolutely and to this day um, 
he still has a warehouse in uh, just outside of Boston that you can you can pick and shop at and stuff like that. So the business is still operating, and oh, wow. um, his daughter is you know running things, and you know it's yeah. uh, it's a force, man. You, can, you know, there's no denying it. <laughs> but no. yeah, he, he laid the blue he he laid the blueprint for a lot of that stuff of uh, you know some of the earliest Japanese buyers coming through were interacting with him and all that. So. Do you see Japanese buyers coming through Boston now? Um, for me personally, absolutely, yeah. man. I mean, that's a big part of my business to this at this point. Um, you know, I, I kind of cater the showroom to that vibe. And um, I personally love, like, old stuff and just, um, you know, the kind of stuff that they're into. I'm, I'm learning all the time. And, you know, it's great. It's a, it's a great facet of the business. How did you transition? You know, I don't know when you started if you knew a lot of people in this business or not, but how did you transition from your your beginnings with t-shirts into because yeah. you you post crazy shit. You post crazy true vintage pieces. You're like one of the guys that gets like insane stuff. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, dude. It's super rad to see. And so how did you transition into that and like learn about it and you know start finding it and figuring it all out um so it basically it, it, it happened pretty quick man because like i said you know from a business perspective once i decided i wanted to do a vintage clothing business i was all in and uh on ev- on all fronts and the t-shirts were the most tangible thing that i knew i had experience with and i already had um you know i was comfortable with my taste level so just going uh to the highest degree out the gate that i could with the t-shirts um, kind of quickly put me around people that have been around for much longer than I have that had already had developed taste in other areas of vintage clothing. And I found myself rubbing elbows with a lot of these kind of dealers and buyers and stuff. And I'm a quick study and I just kind of jumped right into it because when I see something that's cool, I'm all about it. And so uh, when I was at doing the vintage market, my neighbors next door were uh molly and ben who are desires and uh and they were just in the infancy of starting their business and figuring it out they were they were actually doing a lot of uh general antiques at the time and had some clothing so i you know together we all just went crazy with the clothing and came up on that and um so actually the the uh the booth directly next to mine was actually Molly's parents who are classic antique dealers. And then Molly oh, hey. was next to them and they're big Brinfield people. And most of the dealers at that market were Brinfield people and just brought me right in the fold. And so quickly after I got the space there, I started doing Brinfield, just started going crazy at Brinfield. And, um, like one of the first seasons, uh, I'm chilling and Rin Tanaka comes uh, like walking into my booth and uh, I knew who he was, but I didn't want to like blow up the spot. I was more interested in just kind of laying back and watching and seeing him vibe off of what I had. And he was like, he was loving it. He was so like, um, you know, he was hyping it up and he actually bought like one of the best tees I had in the booth that day, which was, uh, a dead stock, um, plasmatics, uh, Wendy will win shirt. 
um, that I bought off of this guy that was like, it was like a benefit show to get uh, Wendy O. Williams out of jail after on some like indecent exposure, like shock rock shit. And I bought like a couple t-shirts and like a poster and the pins and all that. And uh, Rin came through and he scooped the t-shirt and invited me to do the next inspiration show, which was right when they were experimenting with doing it in New York. So it was like about a month out before the New York show. And he just like rolled out the red carpet for me and like brought me into the fold with doing his show and just like made sure that everything was straight and just killed it. And then uh, it was nice because when Rin pulled up to the show, he was, he was wearing the shirt. So like everybody nice. that took pictures with Rin that day, he's rocking it, which was just kind of like a little nice behind the scenes shout out to me that I'm doing it right, you know? And um, yeah, that's rad. Yeah, and so just jumping in early with Rin and doing inspiration and just kind of, like I was saying, just already just being on the level with the t-shirts, I was like, man, you know, I love all this denim and workwear and military stuff too, man. Let me just get it popping and here we are, you know, so really had a lot of, you know, good finds and success with that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's rad. We yeah. did the New York inspiration. Yeah. Um, and that was, they only did one. Or did they do a second one? They, they did two, actually. Uh, so I might have missed you because I, I pulled in on the second one. Okay, so yeah, we yeah, never yeah, went yeah. back for the second one. Yeah. But we've, we've been at the LA inspiration since the first round. Yeah, yeah. Which was super rad. I remember that first round. It was in the airport hangar. Yeah. Santa, yeah. Santa Monica Airport. Crazy, man. SMA. Was, <laughs> yeah SMA exactly <laughs> super rad yeah. um and that was like I can remember it clearly because it was right during the um the hippie boom times yeah when east west were popping off any kind of folk art hippie pieces were popping off crazy yeah and uh yeah it's a great concept and Rin like you know killed it with that for years and years yeah and hopefully uh October man we'll be back once again man I'm keeping my fingers crossed that's oh, the, he's, he's talking about October as that's the next that's, day. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the rumor, you know, nothing confirmed. Yeah. But I don't think he wants to, like, break away from the LA Convention Center. So until that's open, I don't think he's, he's trying to do it anywhere else. But Yeah, fair um, enough. Yeah, and then right after, so right after the New York show, it was like, you know, coming up, that was like October, and then in the February it was LA. So I just flew out to LA, did that one, and just haven't looked back on doing inspiration since. Nice. I want to talk more about Brimfield, man. Okay. I've never been to Brimfield. Really, and it's kind of one of those rites of passage, sort of like Rose Bowl for pickers, especially on the East Coast, but kind of for anyone who's like really in the game, you know? For sure. Yeah. And Brimfield's epic, man. Yeah. Give us the rundown because it's a lot different than your typical flea market. They open up different fields, different days. There's so oh, many it's... more vendors. Yeah. It's madness, man. It's a week straight. Um, opening days on the Tuesday closes out that next Sunday. And like you said, it's, uh, there's like a, a main road that goes down for quite a bit. And there's different fields on either side of the road that are independently owned by different, you know, people and different fields have different vibes, you know, like there's some are more known for furniture. Some are more known for like your grandpa's antiques. Some are a little more hype these days. And like, there's a schedule throughout the week where the field's just open and uh, you just got to be in it if you really want to do it right. 
you know, and there's all, you get early passes and there's a whole culture of that, just people going nuts, like getting in early. And it's a wild time, man. And so, so had I, you gone before you sold there? Um, I had with pretty limited experience and, um, but, but being surrounded by people that had a lot of experience with Brimfield, I got kind of pulled right in, um, pretty quickly and kind of got the lay of the land and, um, you know, met a lot of great buyers, uh, some of the first Japanese buyers I've really dealt with and, uh, still to this day. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's nutty, man. It's something to, you gotta, you gotta do it one of these days, man. Oh, for sure. If it happens again. Yeah. Well, fuck, you know, ah, let's hope so. But I really want to go out there because I do, like I said, I love the East coast. I just want to tour around, you know, see some old places and do field and like, you know, there's a lot on the East Coast that I haven't experienced. Jesse tends to go out to New York a lot more than I do, but I don't yeah. even think he's been back to Boston in a while. Yeah, I mean, if you guys want to come to Boston, obviously, I got you. Going out you got a couch? Bit. You got a pullout? <laughs> God, we got everything at the pullout, man. We got the, you know, if you go come to Brimfield, I got you. Man. Um, that's awesome, dude. Stoked. So it's in Brimfield, Mass, right? Is that where it is? Brimfield, Mass, yeah. And this is like a country town correct yeah it's kind of like a central mass heading towards uh western mass um it's like past worcester if you're coming from the east coast but not quite all the way out to the berkshires how far outside of boston uh it's about an hour drive a little over an hour yeah cool i go home at the end of the night man because i'm cooked man and then i just get up or like i'll sleep for three hours and then hit you know get in the whip at like four or five a.m and head right back yeah and another thing about Brimfield or any flea, like if you're there selling, yeah, will you have time to go picking and buying? Um, yeah. So I, I was in a tent that's referred to as like the fashion tent. It was all clothing dealers. And, um, it was run by this uh, lady, Donna from, uh, St. Louis, who's a super like triple OG, like, um, dealer who's done it all and and she runs a great tent and so i would just like half the time close up my booth just be out in the fields and just have like a a, a note you know with my phone number on it <laughs> totally. um but usually like a lot most of the you know you get, you get everybody there from the most hardcore dealers to the most casual shoppers and a lot of the casual shoppers in the vintage tent i would be wouldn't really roll around until the after the real hardcore hours anyway and so like most of the time i just i'd be out from the crack of dawn to like the late morning just doing my thing and then kind of post up in the tent after but it is it is a struggle yeah (laughs) you know so much going on then how you know without giving you can give as much away if you want whatever but like You know, the East Coast is, is it's older. We've already mentioned that. It's yeah. so much more history there. And there is more, yeah. it, you know, so that means there's older clothing there per, sure. potentially. Yeah. There's different manufacturers on the East Coast than there 100%. is the West Coast. Levi's is West Coast. Yeah. Filson's West Coast. Yeah. Um, what are some good East Coast brands? Oh, man. I mean, one of the most classic is Browns Beach, obviously. Browns Beach. Um, and... You know, from the heart of the city is Doubleware, which is yeah. one of my, I'm a big Doubleware collector. Nice. Um, actually, in, in the, here in the, in the showroom, I have a huge 
double wear sign that was uh, in Bobby's shop for many years and um, ended up at Brinfield, man, and passed through a few dealers' hands real quick and I, I ended up with it. So, yeah, man, double wear is like, I'm always looking out for double wear, built well. Um, Hildreth is another one from Worcester. It's an old workwear company that's like had some amazing pieces that I've, I've had. Uh, there's a lot, man. And then just kind of up the East coast, man, the Brattleboro, like company Carter's like from New Hampshire. There's, there's a lot on the East coast, man, but I'd say so, Delaware, Browns beach, Hildreth. Those are the, and I've seen you post Browns beach. So you obviously yeah. get, get a good chunk of that. Yeah, for sure. man. That is one of those items that, you know, I probably didn't even know about until years into the business. Oh, I yeah. probably, probably passed it up a few times because I'm just like, this looks like just a funky wool coat type thing. Right. It's like kind of unassuming until you yeah. really know what you're dealing with. Right. Sure. But how do you find the picking and, you know, without, you know, whatever, like dive into how do you find old vintage with as much as you want to give away? I mean, you know, like I stay grinding at the flea markets, man, you know, I'm, I'm out at the right, you know, I, I, I hit all the angles, man, you know, and it, a lot of it is networking too. You just gotta be, just got to talk to people and, and just like keep an open mind and be nice and see what, see what pops up, man. Cause you never know, you know, like you say, the unassuming, some old guy at the flea market, you never know, you know what I mean? And just yeah. plugging in, like I've, I've had the privilege of like plugging in with some old school dealers from the area. I'm still sitting on stuff and been able to get a lot of good pieces off them too. So it's, you know, it's just the nonstop consistency that, that, that gets it. The stuff is here. It's just a matter of like staying, staying on it, you know? Yeah. So I want to talk about your showroom too, for a minute here. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think, you know, there's different angles you can take in this business. You can go open a retail store. You can be an eBay guy. You could be yeah. only a live auction guy. There's like all these different angles. Yeah. How do you develop, a customer base for a showroom in a way that's sustainable where you can be it's viable as a business model. Yeah. well the, sh the, the showroom that i'm in now is a fairly recent um space uh so i haven't had it for a while but it's it's a long time coming and uh you know just being around and just networking for years i used to have people come to the house you know and i'm I live in an old like mill building where there's a, like a little private clubhouse. So I used to, that used to be my showroom and I just dragged bins in there and people would hit me up and shop there. Um, but I really needed a place to, you know, show off the collection, man, and just enjoy the pieces that I've worked hard to find. And so now this has been like a paradise and a people love coming here. And, you know, even in the pandemic, I've, I've had a pretty consistent stream of buyers come through, um, you know, appointment only, obviously yeah. it's safe and, uh, sanitized, but yeah, man, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's something that needed to happen after cultivating a, a client base for quite some time and being fringy about selling. And now it's, now I have a, a destination, which is great. And it's good to separate it a little bit from your, if you're at your house and your yeah. work's there and your people are coming and you're around the clothes all day. Sometimes it's like too much. You need to like, yeah, like have a moment and like get away from it. And, yeah. And do you think with a showroom, because you're very, 
you want to attract clientele. You want to attract people. You have to hold product. You have to hold a yeah. good amount of product to make it always worthwhile. Right. To make them come. Yeah. Is that challenging? Yeah, but it's a it's a creative challenge that I welcome because it keeps me motivated. You know, I can't slack. I have to have, you know, I'll sell something out of my display case and I'm like, wow, you know, I, there's a, now now here's a place for something new to come in and it's it's, it's, a, it's a, an exciting challenge that I I really enjoy, man. Nice. So, you know, just, just staying on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you could talk about you know, your transition from your job, your previous job into this line of work, which is kind of a wild line of work, you know, sure there's a lot of people in it now, but it still is, you know, there's a lot of freedom in what we do. Yeah. But there can be a lot of ups and downs. There can be a lot of pressure. There's good times, there's bad times. And you, as somebody self-employed in general, but especially in this business, you take the brunt, you take it, you have to take it all, right? Take it all, man. You take the L's and the, and the W's all together all day long, man. But um, when you said the freedom, that's really what it came down to for me, man, is, is I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and it's always been my goal to work for myself and really just absolutely love what I do. And uh, I've all, since I was always into art um, and design, that's why I took the career path into graphic design because I felt like it was something where I could be creative and um, work towards a freelance business, which I ultimately did. And that was great, but it wasn't giving me that total creative freedom that I was really looking for um, to, to really love what I do. Because at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, you're the creator, but you're still like dancing for somebody else's design and having to noodle stuff in a way that maybe you don't want with the clothing, it's, it's pure creative freedom because I just buy what I think is amazing and you don't get it until the cash is in my hand, you know? And so, um, you know, transitioning into clothing really kind of broke that, that, uh, red tape of creative freedom that I was, I was feeling constricted by with the design stuff. And I think that's had a huge, um, role in my success with it just cause I just like, I bug when I find crazy stuff. And then like the only thing more fun than like finding something crazy is just getting like cashed out for it crazy. And then it's like, I get to go do it again, you know, and I can take it at my own pace too. If I, if I'm, I don't have to wait for anybody's approval or, or anything. If I, if I feel like going hard, I can go as hard as I need to. If I need to fall back and chill, it's like, I have the time and space to do that. So I think that that was the main factor in the transition was really just, needing that creative freedom in what I do because that's where I thrive the most is in the the detail and the curation. And when that becomes the, one of the main objectives of the job, it's like everything else just falls into place, you know? Love it, man. I love it. (laughs) What about a time in this journey where things were, things were bad? Like do you have any examples of times when you were having like a really rough time with it or, you know, and I, if you don't, if you don't, that's fine. I just like to talk about these because sometimes I think everyone yeah. thinks it's all fucking roses, you know? And Well, I mean, honestly, man, last year was a trying times, man, because um, so much of what I love doing is uh, shows and setting up. And uh, a lot of my financial calendar is like based on doing different shows throughout the year. Brimfield being a huge one. 
There's the uh, a textile show in Sturbridge that happens the day before Brimfield opening. Um, that's another show, high-end vintage clothing show that I always do. And last couple of years, I've been um, working with Bob Chat doing the LA Vintage Rendezvous. And, uh, you know, that's been a great, like, boost to my year too. And so last year, it's like six major shows just got completely wiped off the map. And I had to kind of figure out, like, you know, what am I going to do to kind of supplement? And um, that was a challenge. And honestly, getting back into t-shirts and kind of going back to square one is what really uh, gave me that boost that I needed, man, and really reinvigorated my love for like t-shirts where I started. And, uh, you know, I got to give it up to um, to Chris Fernandez, man, because he really laid the blueprint last year with giving so many people the opportunity to like sell t-shirts and make it happen, you know? And I was, I was lucky enough to uh, hop on the virtual flea a few times, man, had a big success with that. And that led to uh, me hopping on other people's lives, man, you know? And I went live with the third floor and a couple of my, my, uh, my guys local in Boston have been doing a weekly thing now. So it's nice. just like adapting and, and getting back into the t-shirts made a, a really crazy, you know, anxious, anxious kind of time really enjoyable and successful man, last year. So. Were you following Chris or did somebody put you on after this was um, already happening? I, I had been following Chris for a minute, man. Uh, he like, he was doing that vintage awards thing a couple of years ago. And like, I, I got my Instagram name got like nominated for like wackiest name or something like that. And, like, <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't win, but I was, I was honored to be uh, to nominated and um so i kind of was you know like the his stash readers is amazing like that's that's one of the coolest series i've ever seen and uh so you saw the whole thing progress from the inception yeah man yeah and like it was funny because i was probably tuning into some of the first virtual fleas and just kind of like keeping an eye on it and watching the 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 quality and the, the dedication build and i was just sort of thinking like yo if i ever hopped on this i could probably just like look around the crib and put together a nice little collection and like crush. And, um, I got on and I did, but it was almost kind of humbling because I, even though I did, it exceed actually exceeded my expectations of, of what I was hoping for. But like, I wasn't like some superstar or something like that. I was just like another dude on his laundry list of like great vendors that he had that weekend, you know? And I was, so I was like, Oh shit, I got to like step it up next time and really like, do the damn thing, man. And then I've been on a few times after that and it's always been amazing. So yes, I've been, I've been on to Chris for a minute, man. <laughs> he's, he's the man. Yeah, that's rad, dude. Yeah. So those first couple months of COVID original yeah. lockdown. Yeah. Like tell us what, what you were up to, if anything. I was chilling, man. I, I mean, I was just like trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Like everybody else. Um, you know, I was still buying and I was hoping actually that, people were going to start letting stuff go for the low, but it turned out the my network, yeah, my network, it was actually the opposite. All the good shit people were like scared to sell. So, but I was still buying and just kind of stashing and I, you know, I knew that this, there'd be light at the tunnel. So like, you know, just trying to buy good, but like my, I think my buying habits got extra targeted and more specific because, you know, like if I know that I got a Brimfield or inspiration or something coming up, I'll, you know, I got my staple pieces, but I also, 
we'll experiment a little bit. I'm like, oh, this is a funky thing, maybe a little out of my wheelhouse. Let me learn some and try and you know experiment, see how this goes over. So I had to kind of cut that and just stick with the like, like yo, I'm buying double X's with leather patches. I'm buying like the fucking the tried and true. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's something. That's a very good point that you make about the weird and out of out of the norm things like something that just has a design feature but it's not a name brand or yeah. a cool folk arty piece but you're like i can't really market that online because i don't even know what to call it exactly those are the things that do great at shows exactly you know? yeah and you have to feel it you have to touch it you have to walk up and just it's something you didn't ever know you needed until you see it and then it's like i need that and you're right. A guy right now, I have yeah. I can see them in the corner. I have boxes of stuff that was like Rose Bowl product. And I've been like pulling from it, yeah. taking the kind of like the, like you say, typical easy to sell vintage pieces out and moving some product. But I still have boxes of this right. just more interesting shit. And that's yeah. the stuff that is, it, yeah, like that's the stuff you'd move at the shows and you can't yeah. really move right and now. It, and it's such a, it's such like a great learning experience too when you bring that funky stuff out to the shows because it's like, you know, I just like to see how people react to it or, or like what people are willing to buy, you know what I mean? And maybe I sell something too cheap or maybe my price is too high and then I can, you know, I can kind of adjust and learn from there and figure out like how to make it better next time. But you don't get that same kind of experience online or, or, or have the luxury of doing that in a weird pandemic time. So it's like, I just, I just stuck to the denim for the last year for, for the most part at the beginning. And just tried to buy like solid shit, and then uh, you know once the, the the whole virtual flea and the online like auction wave started happening, it just totally brought me back to square one with the tees, man. Because also a lot of my customers for the workwear and stuff like that aren't you know are coming from Japan or coming from wherever Thailand and you know uh, the, the the t-shirt market that's ours, man. That's what that's what we're doing here. You know what I mean? That's what it is an American market. You know what I mean? And like the prices I'd get for some t-shirts here are not, not even like a fraction of what somebody overseas might pay. So I think we just it really definitely changed, man. Yeah. And it, it, you know, Japan used to be the buyer basically for most categories, even through t-shirts, yeah. they would be paying more than locals would pay. America would sure. pay, yeah. but now it's completely changed. They're getting priced um, out on so many, on so many things. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> you know i've only had a few japanese appointments since covid yeah because i only got to go to la once and uh sure. we really get none coming through vancouver yeah um but yeah some of the prices i was saying they're like yeah on t-shirts no. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're like yo go get it like go right, do yeah, no, real, man. <laughs> and you will because it's the market's there right now it's insane man that's yeah you know i've been having it, fun with it can you speak on the denim market a bit? Cause I know that has been kind of booming on its own as well. I mean, I think, uh, in terms of pricing, everything's just going up, man. Just, and I, I, and I think it's directly influenced by just these trying times that we're in and the travel restrictions and it's hard. And like, you know, I, I think like there's a lot of, uh, cultural kind of, um, you know, faux pas, it seems like, within like Japan of dealers buying from each other. I don't fully understand it, but it's like they would much rather come and pay up from an American dealer, and bring stuff back there to have it fresh than kind of like circulated it seems. And so I've just like been, you know, seeing prices go nutty, man. And like, I think 
it's just part of the times that we're in. From yeah. my experience, you know. But I'll hey, I'll take it, man. Because it's harder to buy too, man. You know, it's harder. Like, it's I'm not I'm not going to the flea market every weekend. And I can't count on that, you know. So it's like some of the prices I have to pay are way up, and then I got to make my margin. So it's I think all across the board, it's just denims up. Yeah, Japan, as it always is, anyway. You know, Japan really has. You're right about it's got to be fresh. It's got to be fresh. Yeah. They don't they don't want other people to see it. Yeah. It, it, it is, it, but it kind of is smart in the mentality of the first time you show anything is the yeah. best time to sell it. And Larry oh, talked about that too. Larry yeah. was like, the first guy never gets the deal. The second yeah. guy gets the deal because now yeah. the first guy denied your price and you move it on and you sell it cheaper to the next guy because it's not yeah. fresh anymore. Right. Yeah, no, for sure, man. And, and especially like I, I cycle stuff. Like if I, if, if something lasts a year of shows, like you, that's the time to hit me up if I still have it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm with you. And do you, do you have attachment to like certain product? Like when you're out there, you know, there's a lot of dealers that yeah. will be so attached to these products. And I'm like, yeah. dude, this has been in your booth for 10 months at the Rose Bowl. Yeah. The price hasn't even dropped a dollar. Like what are you attached to? What, what, or do you collect stuff as well? You know, man, I like to say I am a collector but my collection is whatever I have for sale at the moment. You know what I mean? I like having an organic revolving collection of stuff because one thing I've realized is that no matter how crazy a piece I've had, there's always something crazy around the corner. Man. I've never, I've never not been able to find something crazy. Like, you know what I mean? And I, and I think it's just staying in that mentality of like, that's what I'm looking for. And then it happens. And so with that being the case, man, it's almost like, the, the, you know, the attachment isn't uh, really there with the clothing just because um, I enjoy selling it so much too. You know? And I always find something crazy. When I'm yeah. It's I like, love it. And I love, yeah. I love my mentality is it's an energy flow, right? Like if you, if you let go of a sick, sick piece, there's going to be yeah. another sick piece coming back around and it's a circle and it has to flow. Man. Yeah. I'm with that, man. For sure. Nice. But I mean, you know, like obviously this, this uh, shirt I'm wearing right now, it's like, Great fit, great condition. It's a rare shirt. I, I like seeing it in my uh, hanging around in my closet. You know, it's you got, it's a 1930s uh, army denim pullover. Yeah, super the, clean. Uh, it has like the tin buttons, army. Yeah, tin the buttons. zinc, the tin zinc. Uh, U.S. Army says U.S. Army. Great. Yeah, that thing is dark denim for people yeah, listening that aren't denim. watching. It has the two interesting font front. Yeah, these are pockets. pockets. Yeah, these are pockets. And, uh, you know, I mean, like, these are great, man. I've had them before. I've sold them, you know. And um, this one just, you know, so it's, this one fits me, man. So I'm, I'm, I'm rocking it. But, like, totally. there'll, be, there'll be a time where this will, I'll let this go. Man. So it's, like, I don't hold on to anything that, that often. And, I mean, I love the, I love the bootleg wrap tees. Like, I go crazy for those. But I, I sell those, too. So it's, you know, yeah. there's always something else, man. Do you have any in your rotating wardrobe at the moment? Raptees? Um, yeah, man, I do. Uh, I got a few good ones, but people are just so nutty for those right now, man. It's hard to it's hard to hang on to them. It's like every time you wear it, it's like depreciating, like a car. You know what I mean? I'd rather just rather just sell it before there's another arm yeah. that starts blowing out. You know what I mean? Totally. Okay, yeah. I got a couple of Patreon questions. Okay, man. From the supporters of the show. Okay. All right. First question comes from Fine and Dandy Throwback. Great guy. 
Enrique, shout out. Yeah, okay. He's uh, he's New York City. Yeah, man. I, he's, uh, I know him from Brimfield. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So he says, what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself in all these years of collecting vintage? Um, I would have to say uh, that everything that I've wanted in terms of like working towards just having creative freedom to really love what I do and just holding on to that idea after shit clients and whack jobs and all that like is real. And I'm like, you know, uh, I've, I've just learned maybe not learned, but more just reinforced to just, just go with your gut, man. And just really just go for it. And like, what else are you going to do in life? You know, just, just do it, man. Just do Just do you. And then just, just, just being in the vintage biz has just been a big confirmation of that. So I guess that's the lesson, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Next question from Patreon member is TLA Bori. Okay. I'll put, I'll link these guys down below in the show notes here, but he says any good resources you've found to help avoid t-shirt fakes. I'm a longtime collector and have a good eye for true vintage, but fairly new to the eighties to two thousands t-shirt game, which is a shit right now. Yeah. You seem to want to run a wide range of errors. So I thought I'd ask. Um, for t-shirts specifically for t-shirts. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, you know, Instagram is such a great resource that we have right now because there's so many amazing collectors and people that just like love showing off their collections and, um, you know, just, just follow people that have the kind of stuff that you like and like, don't be afraid to reach out if you have a question, but also put yourself in that person's shoes and feel like, you know, if somebody has a lot of stuff that you like and they're really doing it the way you, you think is cool, like they put a lot of work in to get there. So just be respectful and, and like make sure that you're not usurping them for knowledge. You know, a compliment goes a long way, but Instagram is such a great resource right now for, for seeing people's collections. It used to be a uh, defunct. It was like the fucking place to learn about t-shirts. Um, when I first started selling tees, I, read every single article, every single forum post, looked at every photo that you could possibly see on Defunct. I haven't looked at it in a while. I'm not sure how much of the original website is still up, but that's- the, I think it's up, was, but they hadn't yeah. posted in a while, but- Yeah, that was um, the number one reference yeah. point for me. You know, Wax and, and, and just, Threads said they're, they're, they're doing a few articles right now. Oh, yeah. No, Wax and, and Threads was like, you know, one of the most official dudes on there when I was, when I discovered the site and just like, I learned about dry rot from reading his early article on uh, defunct, um, you know, great resource for tags. And, you know, I mean, that, that's what the first time it ever occurred to me, Oh, single stitch on a t-shirt, you know, just, just going, I mean, just reading. And uh, so, yeah, check that out. But, you know, just, um, just, just stay on Instagram and just stick with the people with the cool stuff. I'd say, you know, yeah. don't be afraid to, to have a conversation. You make a couple good points there. It, it is tricky now to identify certain bootlegs, especially the real good ones. Yeah. Um, obviously, like there's certain colorways that weren't made and there's certain right. identifying factors. There's small details on tags. But to be honest, half yeah. of those small, minute details, I couldn't even tell you. Oh, man. I, I Somebody was like showing me a shirt the other day that they got called out for being fake. And I was like, it was 
the reasoning was way beyond like anything I'd notice off the top of my head. But I think a, a, a tried and true uh, tip would also be just go for the natural wear and tear, man. Cause like, you know, there's certain kinds of wear that you just can't fake. And like, you know, I, t-shirts are worn in better anyway, in my opinion. Like I'd much rather have like a nice faded out t-shirt with a cool. Yeah, you know, that's so thing. true. You know and what I mean? If you're copying online or copying on eBay, which probably is the, is the number one place to get the fakes now. Yeah. You know, like talk to the seller, talk to the yeah. seller. Cause you're going to get a pretty good idea if it's authentic, just by a few quick responses by the seller, like, where did you get it? You know, right. what do you do? Check check the other listings to yeah. see if they're selling like a bunch of rap tees. And you're like, well, it's probably not legit. Um, That's a great point too, for sure. Yeah. It's communication, man. You know, yeah, totally. 100%. And like, you know, the more, I think the more you just look to, the more you get, a, you know, the more you buy and the more you handle you can just sort of start to get a, a better sense. So also just handling stuff, try to handle as much stuff as you can, you know, which is hard to, when you're buying online, but like that'll, that'll definitely give you a good foundation as well. Yeah. And that, it all that knowledge comes with time. You can't fake the exactly. phone. You can't, you can't read it in a book. Right. You, ha you have to be around it. And I think we're kind of going through a time right now with this boom where a lot of the inflated values on certain categories of t-shirts right now are because the people who are getting involved haven't had enough time around vintage in general mm. and to see like what is rare and what isn't rare right and no like no i'm no judgment call on those people or like what the categories are but sure. it's like you know for someone like you who's been deep in t-shirts for 10 years like you really know what a real rare t-shirt is sure selling t-shirts for 10 years man i mean yeah Owning crazy t-shirts way beyond that. Beyond that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's interesting to see. And I always say that because it's, it's just kind of, I watch the markets. I'm interested, obviously I'm interested in this business. I'm like super deep in it. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I do these podcasts and I talk to yeah. people cause I'm super interested in it all. Yeah, no, it's amazing content, man. I'm, you know, thanks. Yeah. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm just interested to see where this market goes. Yeah. And you know, like, like yourself, like you said, you started in t-shirts and then you really moved into true vintage and design and detail. And sure. I think, I think a lot of people will go that direction Yeah, because you, the real people who are in this for the right reasons want to learn and you got to keep learning. Oh, yeah. you know? oh I, I always consider myself a student. Number one, man. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm no expert. I'm no OG, you know, any of that. I mean, I appreciate a compliment, but like I, I'm a student number one, man. Nice. Yeah. And back, back to that fake t-shirt identifier yeah. comment. It's so true. What you said, a comment goes, I mean, a compliment goes a long way. Yeah. I'll get people hitting me all day for information on things. I'm pretty yeah. good about it. I'm pretty yeah. open to help. I'm chill. Yeah. Yeah. But when you hit me and I don't reply, I'm in the middle of my work day. And then you get at me with like a salty comment later that day. Like, yo, mm -hmm. you fucking don't. I'm like, bro, I'm running a bit. I have like 20 employees here yeah. to run. I'm running yeah, a yeah. business and you're bugging me for like a date on a tag of a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Hold your horses, people. Nah, for sure, man. <laughs> and then like, you know, make sure if you're going to hit somebody up, like for some information, and they want to buy it, give them a chance to buy it, man. You know, that's like, that's true too. 
They're gonna, because the value that they're giving you, the, the information that they're giving you is, you could essentially say has dollar value at the same time. It's a person's time. It's like knowledge. It's so it's like, you know, factor that into your price. If you, if you're getting your, if you can't figure it out on your own, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, that's a very good yeah. point. Yeah. So you ready for a quiz? I wrote a quiz. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So just want to throw this out there. I looked a lot of these answers up. I came up with the questions, but I had to look these answers up to be sure. Uh-oh. Like you said, too, I'm not a fucking expert here on this stuff. My yeah. brain holds enough knowledge in all this stuff to get yeah. by. And then I, yeah. I go and research the rest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but here we go. This is sort of a true vintage quiz, okay? Let's get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what year was the big E replaced by the small E? There is no exact answer to that because there is crossover. But generally speaking, 1971. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So basically, you're right. The crossover was between like 71 to 73-ish when they phased yeah. it out, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. Okay, good. Nice one. Nice one. What year did they remove the cinch back or buckle back on the double X? Um, so the World War II model, I believe, is the first model post cinch back. So the 1930s double X into the early 40s is going to be the cinch, but once that World War II model dropped, it was a wrap for that. So I'm not exactly that was that was probably consistent with the Conservation Act. Can't pinpoint the exact year off the dome, but it's going to be that era. Yeah, totally. Is that an acceptable answer? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. I didn't okay. even write the year down, but I think when I looked oh, okay. it up, it was like 43, 44. 40, which is, that's what I wanted world, to say. Which again is World War II era. Yeah. Um, and. The Conservation Act, like you mentioned, was when the government said you had to minimize resource use on all production, right? Yeah, man. And this is, this is what we're looking at right after World War II. So this is the first, like, double X. That's really the blueprint to, like, the genes that we have today because they were able to get jiggy and bring, all, bring everything back. And uh, you get you get the, the five hundred ones like we got now, man. This is a beautiful pair right oh, here. Oh, that that pair is so and dark, actually, what's, dude. What's crazy about this pair too, which makes them extra rare, is you can see it's hard to see, but there are uh, copper backed buttons on the fly, which is old stock. I couldn't tell you when they stopped making the the copper buttons, but it was definitely uh, at least nineteen thirties. So this pair, even though it's a post-World War II, they brought back the copper old stock for this, making them a little bit of an extra rare piece. So It's crazy. What size is that? That's paper. a good size too, eh? Um, yeah, man. These are, you can still, the, it's not complete jerky. You can kind of read it in the right light. I want to say this, these are tagged to 34, but they're probably like closer to a 30. Yeah. So when he refers to the jerky patch, that is... When the, the back tag was leather, it kind of shrivels up and gets hard like a piece of beef jerky. Yeah, looks like beef jerky. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, during the World War during World War Two, the Levi's had to ditch the Archuit. Yes, Archuit, 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 whatever they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and what else did they ditch? They were hand, they were hand painted on too the Archuit. 
So it's like they had a stencil with the little like stitching and they, so it's like, if you find a world war two pair with the fucking little painted arcuate still there, that's like crazy rare. Cause those were, those would wear right off. Yeah. And they also ditched the, uh, they also ditched the rivets on the coin pocket. And, um, they also would use donut buttons sometimes on the fly as opposed to the, the full metal, like branded Levi's buttons. And then they would have like, you know, wonky, funky material in the pockets. Like, like I've seen ones with like HBT material. I've seen ones with like plaid, you know. Oh, that's sick, dude. Yeah. Those, um, those are just like the unicorns where you're yeah. like, you know, you're probably not going to find this again. And there's only a few pairs made. It was just using scrap fabrics. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's Although cool. I have seen ones with the actual Levi branded buttons too so there's there's no like that was a wild era where there's no consistency but you know if, if you if you find a pair with no arcuate and and you see the you look at the coin pocket and the rivets are gone that's a world war ii pair right there nice yeah. uh okay on to the next question um why is it called the hookless zipper <laughs> i've had some hookless zippers but I think I'm stumped on that one, man. Okay. I just recently learned this. Uh, there's okay. a great podcast episode by these guys called Heddles. And yeah. uh, they yeah. actually interviewed John Gluckow. Okay. All about zippers. So I listened to a whole zipper podcast. So yeah. apparently before, uh, the Hookless was the first zipper with teeth. The first real zipper with proper teeth. And yeah. the early models of zippers actually had like hook and eyes. Ooh, okay. If they tried to like make it work with yeah. hooks, and then I guess once they finally created the teeth one, they were like, "We're calling it the hookless because every model before that was this weird mm. hook thing that didn't actually work. It like pulled apart." Yeah, I'm looking around to see if I got any hookless zipper. I don't have any hookless zippers here like today, but uh, that makes perfect sense. I just know when it says hookless on it, I see dollar sign. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's basically. The best zipper for age and style yeah. you can yeah. find, besides probably that's, some super rare. Yeah, on my on my page, like uh, about a year ago, I, yeah, I, I had a crazy uh, like twenties pullover with a the hookless half zip. That was nutty, man. One of my favorite pieces I've I found. So, a tw- as it was like a moleskin vibe, or what was it? No, no, no. It was a it was a um, a wool hoodie. A wool hoodie, okay. Wool hoodie, two tone, um, from Pauling, New York. Said Pauling New York on it, and that was probably a sports sideline warm up, right? Yeah, I, or I think it was maybe like a. I, I would assume it was maybe the high school, you know, okay. like a high school sports piece. Yep. It was black and red, and it's just a crazy piece, man. It's on my page. Um, nice, you know, one of one of my favorite pieces. So, you know, hookless zippers, I love them. Uh, okay, on to the next question. All right, so I, I failed that one. <laughs> ah, you're doing good, man. You're doing good. And again, I looked all this shit up, so. <laughs> what does the word stifle mean? It is the the last name of the uh, the man who created the fabric, no? Okay, well, maybe I have to double-check my facts. Okay. Um, I believe it means boot in Germany, in German. It, it may, but I, I also heard. think it wasn't the, the It creator. was the guy's name. Was JB's? I see. I say. I. Th- I think that. Is it stifle or is it stifle? That's like that. That's a real question, man. I say stifle, but yeah, maybe stifle? it's stifle. Tomato, tomato. Like I think it might actually be like stifle if you say it with a German accent. But 
either way, you probably right. Yeah. That's probably where I, the maybe we're both right. Maybe we're maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Who knows? Because uh, I was this JB. We'll have to double check the facts. Stifle and Sons, right? Is the name. But of uh, basically, I wanted to ask that because let's talk about yeah. Stifle. Have you had many pieces from them? Um. Yeah, I've had uh some overalls and uh a little uh little scrap ball and some some scraps right here. Oh, sick. Um. But yeah, I've, I've had some I've had some funky stuff, man. I I had a. Uh, like a homemade apron kind of recently that had all different mixed fabrics on it, like uh, some caligos and stuff like that. And then I flipped the pocket inside out and saw the boot. That was a nice little treat. But so um, what it, I was doing a bit of research, Yeah, you know, I'm familiar with it to a degree, but it's not the kind of thing you see very often, you know, like we've yeah, all had maybe all. a yeah. handful of pieces if, if that. Um, yeah. Well, that one you guys had was, it's crazy recently. You know? Yeah, that was yeah. super sick. And that was probably one of the best ones we've ever had. A lot of the times yeah. we'll get scrap ends of pieces, you know, that aren't sure, yeah. Yeah. torn up. Yeah. Um, I read that it was such a statement piece back in the day to have a stifle garment that people okay. would rock them inside out to show the boot. To show the boot? The boot oh, pattern. that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's amazing. And you know, the funny thing about it, I, well, I don't know if this is, if anyone else has said this, but this is just my personal take is part of the reason why it's so rare is because it's like the flimsiest fabric and it was supposed to be workwear and it just wears right out. And that's why it's like, when you, at the time it scraps or it doesn't exist, it's like not a durable fabric. You know what I'm saying? It's not like denim. It's like, uh, it's very, yeah, light, it's like between light. a linen and a denim. Yeah. So it's like, I think that's probably why you don't see it all the time because there's not a lot of it to survive you know very true okay next question yes sir what was the code name for the very first flight jacket code name well not code name but like the military well i'll tell you this i had an a1 i had a crazy a1 i don't know if that's what you're talking about yeah that's what that's what we're looking for Okay, word up. Yeah. So, Again, my page, how man. did you acquire this A1? Did it have a tag, by the way? Uh, oh, yeah, man. It's on my page. It has a crazy patch. Um, I bought it in an auction. And uh, I got it for, like, a good price. You know, I mean, I, I paid, but, like, I got it. And I sold it. And uh, apparently, it's it's gone through a few a few hands of some people I know behind the scenes, man. And, and somebody who originally owned it and wanted to buy it back in the auction was sitting there and was, was blowing me out of the water with their bid. But like, it's the, uh, the electricity went out in his warehouse that, that moment of the, the piece. No shit. So he missed the auction because the electricity <laughs> went out. Yeah, man. Oh, bird. Show me nameless, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. It's on my page, though. If you want to yeah, see it. I, I went yeah. and checked it out, but everyone here, go check it out. Bowie yeah, Coke yeah. Mirror. Obviously, yeah. go follow. But, it's a very simple styling of a jacket. It's super yeah. nice. It's leather. Yeah. has like Beautiful rib, leather, man. Rib collar, yeah. rib waistband. Two, two patch pockets. pockets. Yeah, two yeah. patch pocket. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was basically the first version of what we know as the flight jacket. And then they went on to make the A2. Right. The A2 is now the most 
besides the motorcycle jacket, the fame, the most famous silhouette of a leather jacket of all time. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the Arthur Fonzarelli right there pretty much, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Everyone will remember it from like uh, Top Gun yeah. or these famous yeah. films and they still make them shot, makes them to yeah. this day and will never stop making them. Averex makes them. Yeah. But the A1 kind of like only had that short lived period. Yeah. It's an acquired taste, I feel like. I love the design, but it's not as universal as the A2. It's more like, it's a vibe, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a little more like simplistic, but with a certain time type of detail to it. It's like not as universally appealing, I feel like, as like later stuff. Yeah, completely. And, yeah. you know, half of that, like the fame of that jacket, obviously probably with the media of world war two blew it up where people now yeah. people see it like in the media and the newspapers right. and, and it's like the jacket of the heroes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of how the motorcycle jacket gained all its fame too, was like For the sure. wild ones through, through movies. Because before that movie, if you look back through biker culture, biker culture wasn't like a gang kind of badass vibe. It was more yeah. like, like a bunch of like, dads and moms going to like the track to like just speed around their, their motorcycles in whatever yeah. utility yeah. clothing they had. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's interesting a, also, how those phenomena kind of happen, you know? Totally. And then even much later with like easy rider and all that, and then like the dudes coming back from the Vietnam war needing that camaraderie to like, you know, stick together was like, I think had a lot of influence on the, 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 the motorcycle jacket popular yeah. as well. You know? And the A2 too, to me, it, it's still super rare. The A2 is still super yeah. rare. If you get a good A2 in good conditions, oh, it's a great jacket. I've, I've actually never had an A2, man. But I've, I've like, the reason I didn't, or I mean, because they're always expensive, you know, and you see good ones, you know what I mean? And like, but I, w I would love to have one with a crazy painted back just for my collect. That's like, that's like something that's like the right one has kind of evaded me a little bit, but but yeah, no, the, the, you get the red, the artwork on the back. It's amazing. Yeah, right? we've had a few. Yeah. And they, and they made that jacket basically through World War II. Yeah. And that was it. But then something like the G1. Yeah. Once they started creating the G1, they right. ran that jacket for like 50 years. Yeah, yeah. So you like can find that jacket through like yeah. all these different eras. It's weird. But the A2 yeah. and the A1, you're only finding it authentic from those periods. And there's like 80s ones too, you know, the G1s that are actual military issue or did they kind yeah, of... Yeah, they probably out? are. Like they go from the black tag to the white tag and then you have the, yeah. the ones with the stencil on the neck and... Yeah, yeah. The Vietnam ones. Like that. But yeah. um, and a lot of those A1s too, like you're, you found a, a one with a tag, but with yeah. all military clothing, they're sent out to like different manufacturers. They're just getting from wherever they can. A lot yeah, of those didn't have tags, I'm pretty sure, the, the original A1s. Yeah, there wasn't a yeah, there wasn't a lot of uh uh you know manufacturers with the contract, I guess. But um yeah, no, the, I was I was blessed the one I had was a crazy piece. So it had all the bells and whistles. Like I said, I can't I can't remember with the, the squadron patch on it, but I had a crazy squadron patch and all that. So that was that was dope. That was dope, yeah. Okay, continuing on with the quiz. <laughs> okay, what does the term hige refer to? Repeat that, please. <laughs> hige. hige. Hige is a Japanese term for what? Uh, probably, something they don't want me to, probably something they don't want me to know. <laughs> um, hige is the Japanese term for natural whiskering on denim. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. 
So it actually means like like beard or whiskers or something. Okay. They refer to it for for the wear on denim. All right. Duly noted, man. Okay. I know. I know. Like Takai, like it's too expensive. You know. <laughs> Takai, yeah. Yeah, yeah dude. <laughs> I was. I uh, we have this one Mackinai. Yeah. Mackinai, which is no discount, or at least that's what I've been told, and I use okay. it. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm jotting this down, man. I need. I need this. <laughs> um. Okay. Another question. What is older, the trunk up bandana or the trunk down bandana? That's going to be the trunk down, man. That's the original. Yeah. Yeah. Trunk ups are great too, though. I guess the story goes that they flipped up the trunk because other brands were starting to copy them Mm, and put out elephant and fake elephant stuff. So like we got to keep it on and up and up, keep ourselves different. So they switched it up. Yeah. Those are classic, man. Um, Two more questions. What okay. do the points on point blankets refer to? Uh, I definitely knew this at one point. Um, point blankets refer to like, is it like the, uh, is it the size? It is the size, but it's also something else. Okay. Give me a clue, man. <laughs> it's what they were <laughs> traded for. Ah, the amount of beaver, like, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, totally. you know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was a weird one. I, yeah. I'm very into my my Canadian history and like Hudson yeah. Bay was always like a huge, more oh, of a Canadian, a Canadian thing, right? Yeah, but it was you know the 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 pipeline of trade down the East Coast, right? Like totally wherever. Yeah, yeah. So. And there's there's American point blanket companies for sure. Yeah, the Hudson Bay's that's the classic for sure. And yeah, the, each point you can get like a four point blanket, and that would have been yeah. traded for four beaver pelts at the time. Okay. Yeah, and then yeah, it's, yeah. So it I, I obviously means it's a bigger blanket, more beaver yeah. belts, and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, who put the original Z Boys team together? Dogtown and Z Boys. Who put the Z Boys together? Oh, I know this man. Um, uh, it was uh, the dude who had the, the surf shop, right? Yeah, and totally. um, it was the, uh, I can't think of his name, but I, I know like he had the surf shop and then Stacy Peralta was the, you know, like yeah, hung out he, at the surf shop. On, and yeah. him up. So the original, it was Jeff Ho who owned Zephyr Surfboards, which was the original Z-Boys kind of like team. The Zephyr team, yeah, yeah. The Zephyr team. And I yeah. guess Craig Stesick and Skip That's, Inglum as well were part of yeah. the crew. Yeah, and yeah. they I think they all opened the shop together, but it was mainly mainly Jeff Ho. Yeah, no, that's and um and who who's who's that like that crazy lady that was on the team? Like the uh I forget her name, but Pam uh, Pam O or something like that. Yeah, or, totally. crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, was, like I couldn't even tell you the original team members besides yeah. like three or four names. Right, like Alba and uh yeah um yeah but it's it's cool air to talk about because i think a lot of people don't know you know i just like to touch on it because that air was so influential in in yeah in history and probably like a probably partially in your childhood because you grew up in yeah, the man. 90s skating and that was like Ooh. the generation before us that yeah. got us into it you know yeah well that was all the old stock stuff at the skate shops when i was a kid you know you find some old h-town sure or something or like whatever you know some sma like i was into that stuff man i was always digging in the back you know one thing i forgot to mention is i heard you're a break dancer dude uh yeah i mean you know 
I was more of a more of a pop, you know, like a popper than a breaker, man. I never really was on the full b-boy tip, but I was like, uh, you know, I used to pop, man. And I was into all, I was into, I was into like, you know, when I, when I first like got into like hip hop, you could say, uh, you actually had to like be a practitioner of the elements to actually be like, yo, I'm a hip hop kid. You know what I mean? Like couldn't just be a fan of the music. I mean, you could, but like from my perspective, like people I was around, you actually had to do it, man. So, you know, I used to pop and all that kind of stuff man freestyle you still dabble yeah i still dabble man we could throw this you know we could throw on a beat man i, I don't know, about, you know <laughs> no, i'm baby. not gonna ask you to dance on the show um <laughs> yeah i would be, be rad though but yeah i will man. Yeah, actually <laughs> if you scroll down far enough on my ig there is a little clip of me popping you can okay. find it yeah 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 <laughs> maybe i'll have to cut that into this episode cut it in man. yeah <laughs> sick well yeah. you did that was good you did you pretty much you know, okay. you're like 75% or so on that quiz, I, some random questions in there. Hey, man. But the knowledge is deep, Sam. The knowledge you, is man. deep. Yeah, of course, man. Always learning. Man. I also heard that you carry around T-shirts in your trunk in case you happen, <laughs> you happen to find somebody who's buying at any given time. Yeah, I've been known to do it, man. You know, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm buying now. anyway. I'm on, I'm on the road all the time anyway, Lincoln and buying and you know, sometimes stuff just stays in the trunk, man, and you never know. And I might just pop up at a flea market near you. You never know. You know? Do you have any stories of randomly just like popping the trunk and making some deals? Um, it's funny because uh, this is this was kind of recently, man. It was um, I was uh, I, I believe it was after the last vintage rendezvous so maybe 2019 and i wasn't gonna set up at the rose bowl that weekend i was just gonna like shop it but i had all my gear from the show and somebody told me that like because you know when i go to the rose bowl i i pull up you know when the dealers pull up and i try and you know i'll buy a space just so i can be in but i like didn't get a space that time and somebody told me that like people were coming like an hour early you know like people were showing up at like two three o'clock and doing deals in the parking lot so i i, I rolled out i got there at like maybe 2 30 something like that and lo and behold there was like this little like crazy like cluster of uh of, of people just like going nutty in the parking lot outside the parking lot and i just threw all the t-shirts on my trunk and like cashed out like an hour before i could even go in the, the thing so <laughs> you never know, man. Just keep the stuff, you know. And, uh, That's the secret. You got to get them early. You got to get them know? before their pockets are empty, which is Fair first enough. thing and in I, the morning. Yeah. And another time I was in LA, man, I was, um, I always hit up this burrito spot on uh, Sunset uh, next to um, Ragmop Vintage. I forget the name of the spot, but it's like a little cut, like right on Sunset. They have a little parking okay. lot. And I was just chilling. I had like, I think I was going home that day and I was, um, I was just chilling, eating a burrito. And uh, do you know uh, Hellhound? Great, great dealers in LA. They pulled up to get a burrito. And so I popped the trunk and we made it happen, man. <laughs> uh, that's so rad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah good times, man. Always on it, man. There's no, no, no days off, man. You know fucking right. You got to live it, man. I live it, man. <laughs> do you have any digging stories you can share with us 
Um, yeah, sure, man. I mean, uh, there's been some, there's been some crazy ones. Like one of, one of the first one, one of the first good workwear hits I ever had, I can say not, not a super crazy story, but like there was this dude that there's like this one flea market that I would, I always go to start my Sunday morning at this particular flea market. You know, I start there at like 4am and just work my way through the day. And like, there was this one season, this crazy dude, like vampire looking motherfucker, like seven foot tall, crazy clean out guy, uh, started pulling up and you just like throw junk everywhere and just like cash in, you know, you're getting cashed out, but everything is like so cheap. And he's like all about it. Just cashing out. It's like big, crazy voice. And I, he had some like kind of, he had, he had some like kind of dry rotty, like dead stock work shirts one day. And I was just like, yo, started chatting with him. And finally he said, uh, he's been doing clean outs for a while. And for some reason, he doesn't know anything about clothing, but he's, he had an inclining to like stash anything that he thought looked good and old. And, uh, he let me come by one day and I, I go out to the sticks to where he is. And like, he had everything tossed like all over his lawn, like, just uh, like some of the oldest overalls I've ever had, multiple overalls, buckle back jeans, a crazy weather car coat, just like all this shit. And like, it was pretty amazing, man. It was like the first, it was like the first like really good like workwear hit that I had where I just got all this old stuff all in one shot. So there was some old pin check overalls and like uh, cool stuff. It was like some, some Navy uniforms that were all bloody and like just hectic, man. It was like hectic. But it was like it was amazing, and it and it just like it was invigorating, you know. I just like oh had, yeah, that's just had to do it again, you know. Fires you up, man. Yeah, yeah. So the I mean, pr- like, you know, the prices was, were probably great. Prices were good, man. You know, he was happy. Everyone was happy, and uh, you know, there's a lot of little stories like that. It's a lot of little moments, man. You know, I never had some crazy big like, you know, like Larry was saying how he whipped, you know, took off the tarp and the, like I whole table full of yeah man it's the little those little moments you know that 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 really uh you know i've I've had some good surprises where i've pulled up on people that didn't know what to expect but it's been really fruitful so just the consistency is is the craziness i'd say it's just just always on it you know always being ready yeah you gotta be you never know where opportunity you know what i mean that's important too in the business is, is being liquid and just always being ready you never know when you're going to get that call. Man. Yeah. And that's that, that being liquid has come up a couple of times on the show where people, yeah. you know, I think people are so quick to just j- jump in back into new stock, new stock, new stock. If, if they have cash, they're like, I'm just going to buy whatever comes yeah. my way. But like, yeah, you kind of got to be strategic and have it's a something balance, for that man. right deal. And it's, that's something I, I, I'm getting better at all the time, man. Cause I, I'll, I'll spend cash just as quick as I get it. You know, like if there's no one there to stop me, <laughs> but it's all yeah, good. yeah. And it takes money to make money, right? Well, for sure. I mean, you got to yeah. invest in the right stuff. Yeah. Um, but then again, you got to be ready for the big score. And I feel like there's going to be a lot more big scores coming up here. Yeah. I don't know why? I have a feeling. I'm feeling like people are going to start trying to sell collections. And yeah, man. Who's going to yeah. be ready? Right. I mean, yeah, man. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of old timers are coming to the end here, man. You never know what's going to pop up. So. I think that I think yeah, there'll be people who are like getting getting out. People who yeah. maybe 
now are like I'm kind of was we're in it before, but realizing like you know yeah. I don't I don't need the money, and I'm kind of just getting out of the business because I'm semi retired anyway. That's or yeah. or youngsters who jumped in so heavy, yeah. and then they're like maybe I should probably cash out these hundred thousand dollars worth of t-shirts I have. Right. To, yeah, uh, for the t-shirts certainly, man. People are definitely holding right now. You know that's not going to oh, last. Yeah. So I feel right. like everybody has a collection of something they're holding. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So well, when you when, when we were talking earlier, when you were asking me earlier about like, do I have attachment to stuff? I, I have been a crazy collector my whole life. Man. You know, I started with like comic books, records, and then I have an insane, massive collection of graffiti ephemera, man. All the early zines and everything from the mid 80s to the mid 90s. I just have thousands of pieces of that shit. And I love that and I'll never sell it. And part of the, uh, what was kind of refreshing when I was gotten into clothing biz was for some reason that's just not there, man. I'm like happy to sell it. So it's like, but I was able to use my collector mentality to kind of be able to hone in. I think that gave me a little boost in finding good clothing too. So, What kind of stuff do you have? Like the ephemera, like you're talking magazines and... Yeah, magazines, man. I mean, so like, you know, in the... Um, Early to mid '80s, there was a, a, a magazine called the International Graffiti Times that was started by a photographer uh, and sort of this anarchist, like downtown Lower East Side fixture. This cat named David Schmidlap, and he linked up with uh, the writer Phase Two and um, a couple other of his friends and started this amazing broadsheet fold-out zine that folded up like a subway map. And that sparked a truly international network of people from mostly in Europe first before it really spread to a lot of the major cities in the U.S. of creating this kind of pen palish like network of scenes and um, graffiti magazines like from the mid 90s up until today sort of took a different like twist to what this first wave that I'm super interested in um, was all about at the time. And I just like, I was at the age sort of in the middle of that where I became hip to it and started collecting even back then, you know, as early as when I was like 11, 12 years old and just like made it a crazy mission to just focus on the inception to the mid nineties of amassing this archive. And uh, I've actually done projects with it. I did. I was part of an exhibit um, a few years back uh, at uh, Red Bull Studios. Had a graffiti exhibit and stuff like that. So that's that stuff. I'm just super into on a personal level, and just um, have been a collector of. But definitely, uh, it's it's funny because I do have some crazy early graffiti T-shirts that were only available through some of these mail orders and stuff like that that I keep. As part as a part of that collection, yeah, yeah, that's rad. So, yeah, just did a you song. write graffiti? Yeah, man, I was I, I got into it super super duper young and just kind of like rocked with it and like I mean I I haven't been active in a long time, but I and you I were talking before about the, el the elements, right? And that is yeah. that is a key yeah. element. Yeah, man, exactly. The elements write. are <laughs> DJing, the music, dancing, yeah. and yeah. the art. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. So that's, that's awesome, cool. dude. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, it's, it's it's really hard to find any of that graffiti clothing. You know, yeah. I I have a stash of the like the later stuff, the '90s cartoon graffiti drawing type yeah. stuff. Um, I had all of that too, man. And I I just love that shit because that was what I bought in yeah when I was a kid. No, I know, man. That's why I was bugging when you did your the stash raiders with Chris because it's like everything you were pulling out. I was like, oh, that's it, man. That's that is it. <laughs> I'm so glad you're bringing that to light, man. You know? Yeah, I really just bought, brought a real random cross section of shit that I appreciate. You know? Yeah, yeah. And totally. but as far as that early eight, '80s graffiti stuff, yeah, I don't have any pieces, man. You know? And I don't. There was probably such. It, low numbers of any of that stuff produced that if at all you know yeah well one one cool t-shirt that i have that is somewhere down 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 on my page is um there was a store called soho zat which was down in uh like canal street and west broadway and um they were the first they were kind of like a funky head shop like you know all kind of underground type of stuff at the time and they were the first people to carry that International Graffiti Times, the IGT. So there's a lot of history there. And the store actually ended up having several iterations. I believe it still exists today called uh, Scrapyard. And it's like always been evolved into like a graffiti store where you can buy caps and paint and all kinds of stuff like that. But I have a, a 70s head shop-ish era like Soho Zat shirt that's like... Super cool. I'll never sell that, man. I just that's going with the magazines, you know. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, the nostalgia outweighs yeah. the any yeah. kind of potential profit there. Yeah, find another too, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, man. Well, that was a rad episode, dude. Thank you for coming on. Yo, the man. La- the you, last man. Th- is there anything else you want to uh kind of talk about before we give give some shout outs? Yeah, man. I mean I I think we covered a lot of ground here, man. I appreciate all the questions and uh, hopefully people really find this uh, useful and maybe learn something, listen to it again. Like, you know, I'm, I'm here learning from you. So it's, it's a great exchange. And uh, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. I, it's it, rad. It, it I, don't, go, I didn't really know you before this, but now I feel like we're buzzed. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is I ran into uh, Jesse uh, at the Rose Bowl, like maybe a little over a year ago. And uh, you weren't there that day. And he, he asked me, like, yo, did Drew hit you up about the podcast, like doing a podcast? And I was like, nah, but yo, tell him anytime, man. I'm, I'm down, you know? And that was like a year and a half ago. And He definitely didn't tell me. He oh, really? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Word. I don't know. It was a shout out to Jesse, man. But here we are. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, no, I, I I'm, uh, obviously, like, you're on, you're on my radar. And I'm glad sure. we, we connected. But I think yeah. what, what sparked me to hit you up this last, just right now, was seeing you on Thrift Lord. Oh, word. Ah, I was like, you. yo, yeah. here. I need to get him. Uh, yeah, no, shout out to Taryn, man. I mean, that, that to me, he, he is truly one of the best in the biz today. You know what I mean? Can't take nothing away from that dude. So uh, yeah, I'm glad that. He crushes it, man. He crushes it. We the, talk often. He's yeah. my homie. Yeah. And you saw, you know, you saw me on there apparently. So that's, that's, some, that's he's doing big things. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, for a young <laughs> dude, for a young dude, he's like 21. Killing it, man. Killing Great it, guy, man. Yeah. Okay, because this is an East Coast episode, I want you to give us some East Coast shout-outs. Like, who do you think right now needs to get put on on the East Side? Whew. Man. I mean, just shout-out to all my guys in Boston, man. Everyone's just doing it. 
doing great stuff, man. Um, tonight, after I leave here, I'm heading over to my boy uh, Disorder Vintage's spot, and we're going live with our boy DeAndre, High Society, HS Vintage. We've been doing a, a little Tuesday night live thing, man, selling some great T-shirts. Um, shout out to those guys, man, and, you know, uh, Strange Desires, obviously, shout out, you know, putting you on the some behind the scenes stuff and those are still my people. So it's just, just everyone, man. I'm, I'm just like, I'm just grateful to be, you know, around people that are doing stuff and, and, you know, it's a, it's a great local scene. I love, I love all the West coast people and worldwide, man. So Hell yeah. shout out to everybody, man. <laughs> Nothing but love. I'm yeah. glad you found your creative calling in vintage, dude. I'm digging it now, man. We'll see where the we'll see where the future holds, but I'm I'm enjoying myself now, and I'm glad that that people are are taking note. So thank you, man. Perfect. Okay, thanks for coming on. We'll end it there. All right, Drew. Thanks, brother. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I enjoyed recording it. Sam is a great dude. Again, make sure you go check him out at the LA Vintage Rendezvous, February 13th, Huntington Beach, California. Link for the info down below. As always, I appreciate the patrons. If you want to support this show, if you want to get all the good show notes, if you want to see the extra content that we recorded on this episode, some real deep business advice from Bowie Cokemere, go subscribe. You can start at just five bucks a month. Go check out FSNFrankVintage.com. Look behind me. We post tons of shit daily, okay? Tons of shit. Use code VTGN stuff. That code will be down in the show notes. VTGN stuff is going to get you 30% off the website, especially for the listeners of the show. Stay tuned. Got the producer. We're going to be pumping out more content. This means lots more good stuff coming soon. Thanks again. See you on the next one.